Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stories About Autism podcast. My name's James, I'm your host and each week I'll be joined by a special guest who gets to tell me their own story about autism. I'm a dad of two boys, both of them are autistic and I've been writing a blog for nearly three years now telling stories from our everyday lives. If you're a new listener, welcome. This is episode number six, so please make sure to go back and check out some of the previous episodes. I've had some really good guests so far sharing some really uh, interesting stories about autism. If you've listened to the other episodes, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad that you're enjoying them and that you're back to listen to another really interesting story today. Today I'm talking with Steph Curtis and Steph is a mum to two girls and one of them is autistic and she writes a blog called Steph's Two Girls and that's where I or how I've got to know Steph over the last few years and one of the reasons I'm really glad to have her on today is because Steph's daughter has a slightly different diagnosis than than a lot of you probably will be will be aware of or or know much about um Steph's daughter has a diagnosis of PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance. Now that's a particular sort of behavior profile within an autism diagnosis. And to be honest, I knew nothing about it until I I stumbled across Steph's blog. Um, I've been following it with interest for the last couple of years. And as I said, it was really good to talk to her and uh, get her to explain sort of what PDA is, uh, what it means for her daughter Sasha's life and the sort of adaptations that her and her family have had to make to to um, to help Sasha cope with with everyday life. So I really do think today's episode is a bit of an eye opener, uh, especially if if maybe uh, your child has an autism diagnosis and you feel that maybe there's something a little bit more as well that uh, that doesn't explain everything. You'll see once you listen to to Steph explain everything, um, it will become really clear and. I also hope it changes people's attitudes a little bit, uh, not always jumping to conclusions and just thinking a child's being naughty or being a brat because then they're not doing something they sh- should do. Sometimes there's a, a real reason behind that behaviour. Anyway, let's get to it. Here's my chat with Steph. I really hope you enjoy it. Please feel free to leave me a comment, ask me any questions and definitely check out Steph's blog after to, to learn a bit more about PDA. Here it is. Steph, hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah. Good, good. It's really nice to get to talk to you in person. Yes, we've, <laughs> we've known we've, each other well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We've known each other through this sort of online blogging world for a couple of years now, I think. So, yes, it's really nice to get to talk to you and, and uh, yeah, get to know a bit more about you. Good. <laughs> um, so, do you want to just give everyone a quick little sort of intro into who you are and your family and... And uh, yeah, a bit of background to your autism story. Okay, so I'm Steph, obviously. Um, I have two girls and I write a blog called Steph's Two Girls. Um, and the, so the two girls I have are 13 and 10, nearly 11. And our youngest girl, Sasha, was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. So yeah, it's been a, a good eight, nine years now of, of knowing that she has autism. Okay, so eight or nine years. So wow, there's a, I'm sure there's a lot that's changed in that time. Yeah, I think so. You you do definitely get more used to things, and obviously, the more you read, the more you learn as you go along. So yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So if you can think back to when you, 
I don't know when when autism sort of first came into your life or being aware of it like how, how did that all come about like how, how did that start okay so we had um we'd had our eldest obviously she was about two when Sasha was born um Sasha was fine as a baby but probably from about the age of six months um we started to think it wasn't so easy you know taking her out places I, I wanted to go to toddler groups with the eldest and um, the youngest would start well she wouldn't join in she wouldn't sit happily quietly she you know nothing major but just kind of it it was more of a challenge yeah um and then so it kind of we didn't worry too much though um probably as she came up to the age about 18 months um she was starting to make a lot of noise but not actually forming any words and our eldest girl had talked at this point so we started wondering if there was something with the speech yeah. Um, so we asked, we waited actually until the health visitor checkup that they do at two years. Um, and the health visitor came along and said, as you know, quite rightly they should, that all children develop at different rates. And, you know, she didn't see the speech as being a main issue that would probably be catch up later, all those sort of things. But we just felt still that something maybe wasn't quite right. But we, we were really focusing on the speech. Um, like I said, a lot of noise, but not actual, you know, words forming. So we then found out, you know, through a quick sort of Google, as you do, that um, you could self-refer to a speech therapist. So that's what we decided to do at that point. Um, we went direct to the speech therapy team, the NHS team. Um, we had an appointment then in the, the September, so when she was just two and about three months old. Um, and that appointment went well, but the, the speech therapist sat and talked to me a lot and Sasha did her own thing in a corner of the room and didn't really interact um and I, I didn't see anything wrong with that because Sasha was just quite happy over in the, the corner yeah. doing her own thing and um, but the speech therapist sort of looked at me and said you know do you find it strange that she's not come and talked to me or been involved and I said well not really she's happy so again I didn't think much more of it the speech therapist just told me she was going to refer us on to a pediatrician which she said it was just routine so I went away and that, you know, I knew that wouldn't happen for a, a few months. So that was Christmas coming up. So we were busy with Christmas with a obviously two year old and a four year old. Um, so didn't, again, didn't think much about it. And then we went back, went for our first appointment with the pediatrician in the January. Um, and it was there really that I don't know whether you'd say the penny dropped. It just, we went in. It was just myself and, and Sasha and the pediatrician runs or tried to run through a series of tests with Sasha for, you know, a child of that age. And Sasha would only do the bits of it that she wanted, or that's how it appeared at the time anyway. Um, she got not bored, but, you know, not interested very quickly and wouldn't really react, um, you know, or interact with the paediatrician. And it's all the kind of things that I sat there and watched her. I thought, oh, you know, my eldest child would have done that. She would mm -hmm. have listened to what the paediatrician was saying. So I kind of, in, within that one um, appointment, it became more obvious to me. And I saw, and normally I'd just say, Sasha's a bit too tired to do it. You know, she didn't want to do it but it was half past nine in the morning so I knew it wasn't a tiredness issue yeah and then she started trying to you know drag me out of the room because she didn't want to be there anymore um so I managed to to, get to lie down on a couch while I then spoke to the pediatrician and the pediatrician then although she didn't mention autism first she talked around the triad of impairments and kind of the social communication and interaction um and sort of as much said to me that that's what she thought it might be so it was kind of a bit it was a shock, a surprise, but equally not. It kind of made sense then. Everything that Sasha was doing, it sort of put it into place. So, so yeah, she didn't diagnose straight away. We went back a month later, um, and then she said, yes, that's what she suspected it was. So when they first mentioned the word autism, as you said, something sort yeah. of clicked into place. But did you know anything about autism then? 
No, so very little. I mean, just the typical Rain Man movie. That was, you know, the, the most I probably knew about it. Um, so, yeah, surprising how much you can learn quite quickly. And I think yeah. the first thing I learned when I got home is how many other people there were that I didn't know about. Um, you know, it's almost like they all came out of the woodwork, you know, even sort of across the road from me. <laughs> there was someone and, you know, the next street down. So it was, yeah, it was quite surprising. Up until that point, it was like my eyes had been closed to it. And then all of a sudden, yes, it was a very quick learning curve. Yeah, I remember th- thinking that as well. You know, you sort of think back and think, oh, I, I never knew anybody who was autistic or knew anybody yeah. that had autism. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's sort of brought into your life. And as you said, there's like someone who lives opposite. There's someone yeah. around the corner. There's, and Definitely. It's strange how yeah, yeah. your eyes are really closed to, to what's around mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I mean, I guess people, you know, probably teachers who, who work with a lot of children and see a lot of children, um, you know, or those who are working with adults, then yes, you know, they may may have seen it more. But I just... Yeah, so I wasn't aware of any yeah. differences, really. So you said it took about a month to go back to the second appointment. And is that where you yeah. got the diagnosis then? Or? Yes, yeah, she did then, yeah. And, what... and I think, you know, possibly because we weren't um, querying it, you know, it kind of, as I said, it made sense. So, yeah, we went with it. And what sort of happened next? Like, what, what did they either advise you or, or tell you? Yeah. So there's, there wasn't a lot. Like I say that, don't want to say it in a, in a bad way to the paediatrician. I just think, you know, the system doesn't necessarily support parents when you, you get a diagnosis. So we mm. were sent away with a leaflet for a local support group and that was about it. Um, there was a referral made to a local autism team. Um, and I remember I've written in my blog that I think we were told it was six weeks waiting time. And I was, at the time I was like, well, six weeks, that's crazy. That's so long. <laughs> and now I think, you know, some people obviously have to wait <laughs> yes. months and years yeah, for a diagnosis. Six weeks would be so, amazing. Yeah. I mean, that was, I know. I, and, and to be fair, it probably wasn't much longer than that before we were then seen by an autism team. Um, it just felt like a long time yeah. at the time. But yeah, other than that, you know, there wasn't really much follow up or I don't know what what I'd be expecting it just felt I think once you get that diagnosis like it was a bit of a void and mm. what you do with it and you have to really be capable of going away and researching it all yourself um, but you know you want to steer in the right direction and also as much as I said it did really you know kind of suit to the diagnosis it fitted in place you still question it because you don't really understand it at all yeah and especially because she was so young I think that was you know, people would say to me, but she's just like any other toddler. <laughs> I was like, well, yes and no. And and that was part of the reason why I started the blog was because it just it was trying to highlight and pick out what made it different to other toddler behavior. Um, and, you know, it was difficult for me to see that sometimes even being with her all the time. So, you know, I could appreciate why other people on the outside wouldn't necessarily understand it. Mm. So, yeah, but yeah, from the pediatrician, we, we didn't have an awful lot to go on, but then the next stage, I guess, was when the autism specialist um, did come and they came to the house and we were um, then given an hour a week. And again, I remember thinking it was just her time. What was I supposed to do in the holiday time? <laughs> but for an hour a week, a specialist person would come around and try and interact with Sasha. Yeah. Um, you know, so this was when she was um, three, around that sort of age. So before she was already in a nursery, but it was before she'd gone you know, full time or to preschool type places so they came around spent an hour a week with her and tried to persuade her to do you know play little games them or whatever but she always resisted that she did you know over the times we probably had that person you know come the rest of that term and another term so you know she maybe saw this person 20 times at a guess and she did over that time you know start to build up a relationship with her and do bits more for her 
but still wasn't, you know, doing the full range of what you'd expect a child of that age to be doing. So, um, but it was a really helpful thing. You know, I definitely am not complaining because we got support then at a time when I did really need it. So, you know, we were very lucky. I think it's really important the, the support you get in those early days because it is so new. And yeah. as you said, like, you know, you knew so little about it. Mm-hmm. You just want to soak up any advice from anyone, really, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And you kind of you almost you want other people to see the struggles you're having yeah. as well because it kind of validates it. And you know, you think it's not just me going crazy. <laughs> it's not just me being strong enough or not being a, a good parent or whatever it is. It's kind of you know, if someone else sees that behaviour too, then it it, you know, it helps. Definitely. So, do you remember in those early days, sort of how you felt back then? And as you said, I, I guess it. You know, I can go on my own experience. It was sort of a confusing time because you know so little about autism. Yeah. Do you remember how, how you felt? Yeah, I kind of, and I suppose my first feeling was relief, really. And I think from that, that someone else understood it as well and could see what was happening. Because I think, you'd, like I said, you do question yourself. Um, so that kind of the relief was that other people would understand and that it made sense to to me and to other people. So yeah, that was that was my first feeling and yeah, confusion or not knowing and the whole roundabout. I think the early days of my blog it talks about you know not being sure and is it really is it just her you know toddler behaviour and you know and again sort of how how bad is she? That's you know not a great expression now, but that was the kind of thing I was talking about. You know the whole functioning and ability and kind of where would she fit and you do start racing ahead jumping about what's going to happen when they're an adult and stuff (laughs) so you know your mind is going a million miles an hour and you don't really have you know to start off with a network of people to run it all through with because other people who haven't experienced this you know don't get it um so you know you can talk to them but there'd be no feedback and ideas so I think very quickly for me and you know the, the first bit of advice I'd have for any parent who gets a diagnosis is to find other parents who've had a diagnosis even you know if the children are, are slightly different is just being in that world of what will happen and what will come it just helps to you find out the best information from parents for sure. Yeah I, I think thinking back there was uh, one couple who was a, a friend of a friend who we got introduced to who you mm-hmm. know, become good friends with now whose who's son's autistic and yeah, yeah just those little bits of advice even on where to turn to for support yeah. and what happens when you apply mm-hmm. for school and you know just those yeah things you you sort of take for granted that, that are a bit yeah. different mm-hmm. yeah lots of things <laughs> which you kind of you know looking back I think it'd be great if the pediatrician had some kind of document to hand over but part of the other problem is in the early days is that you do amass quite quickly a huge amount of leaflets and booklets and you know information and then you end up with a stack on your your floor at home that you just can't get through and you can't face because you've looked at so much of it and you don't know which bits are very relevant to you so you know something very simple like a a checklist would be helpful so you need to contact yeah i still have mounds of paperwork (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah even more now, but they are slightly yeah. better filed after eight years, <laughs> but still have the piles too. <laughs> so, um, so Sasha was diagnosed at around two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, what mm-hmm. were the, sort of the, the next early couple of years like before school? Yeah. So she was at that time at a local um, nursery. It was very near to our house, and that our eldest had been to as well. Um, they really struggled uh, with, you know, what she was refusing and because they were based in a park and they wanted to go out for walks and she would just 
not, you know, so they couldn't make her go out with all the other children. Yeah. And I think, you know, from a point of view of obviously the, you know, support and um, that ratio of adult to child, they were struggling with that and found it very difficult to access any funding for extra help. So we ended up having to move Sasha from there to the nursery, which was attached to the mainstream school that my eldest was at. And I think just, well, you know, just a difference in, in situation that worked quite well. It was, it wasn't easy by any stretch, but, you know, they um, coped with it, shall we say. So yeah, it, that was, you know, difficult times, but she was going in, she was being part of something, you know, I'd often have to go collect her and she was, you know, having a meltdown, things like that. But, but it was nice to have her there somewhere and, you know, also a similar location to where our eldest girl was. And we, you know, hoped she would carry on into that school. So it did help. Yeah. And she did then. So then she moved into the reception of that school. Um, but one thing we did before she moved into reception was we went through the process to get a statement of educational needs. Yeah. Um, so it's now known as an EHCP, the Education, Health and Care Plan. But when Sasha was about four, we applied for that before she started at the school because we just felt we wanted all the paperwork in one place and to understand what kind of support she would need. Um, and she started off with a statement then in reception, but it didn't, as, as a lot of people think, you know, it didn't really come with focused, you know, one-to-one time and, a, and an assistant for her. It was more about, you know, recognising that she needed small group work and breaks and things like that. So that's how she started off. Yeah, so obviously both my boys go to a special needs school, so the, mm-hmm. the statement was sort of a, a given and the, the mm-hmm. level of support are given. So it's, I always find it interesting to to see what the provisions like in a in a mainstream school mm-hmm. yes and i mean they were really good you know I, I can't fault them they they tried very hard with sasha but the paperwork for us was just a way really of getting everyone together in the same room to say and say something at the same time yeah. so it did definitely help us you know that's another thing i would recommend but again i was probably doing all that before i knew very much but having spoken to some parents about it but it's, you know, it's quite a stressful thing to do as well. So sometimes I look back and I think, I can't believe I actually did that and went through getting that in place for her. But we just, we were lucky, obviously, with the professionals we had and the people who were working with Sasha. So, you know, I, I look back and I think it wasn't necessary if a school has the right provision in place, yeah. you know, and they, they want to support the child, then they will do what they can. You know, and obviously every child's needs are different. So it's relevant to the child. But yeah, it's helped us. What were some of Sasha's challenges back then? Like what, what did she need extra support with? Um, it's very tempting to say everything at that point. Um, but no, I mean, Sasha was really, or is still, but um, a very happy child when she's, yeah. you know, comfortable. She's very, she's quite sociable, which is, you know, a common myth, I think, that people like to say autistic um, children aren't sociable. Um, she loves being around other people. But she, you know, never really understood the the give and take of anything. You know, she'd struggle to to share things, but and yeah, interact. She she always it was almost like we'd say she was like a mini teacher because she never felt or she never seemed to feel like she was one of the children. She felt almost as if she should be at the front of the class with the teacher teaching the class too. <laughs> Although I say that not in the way that you know I think children with maybe Asperger's syndrome are very articulate and. And, you know, can talk and would be able to lead a class. Sasha was not like that in any way. So her speech was still always an issue. So she needed, well, regular help with the speech therapy. That kind of involved the speech therapist coming in and observing her and then passing on ideas to the 
class teachers and assistants <laughs> um, because Sasha would struggle really to build up any relationship. As I said, it took a long time with the autism specialist. And, you know, so we, we tried getting in um, a private speech therapist, for example, at home. But her kind of anxieties meant that she didn't want to interact with other people. Yeah. Um, so that was that was really the main challenge for us was getting her engaged and you know comfortable enough to take part in things. Um, and that's, you know, has really followed through from then. So, yeah, the, the speech was that what everyone focused on because it wasn't clear. But her behavior really was um, refusal if there was something she was not comfortable doing. So I would say we were lucky in that it never really progressed. She wasn't violent. She didn't really have outbursts so much. But it would be more she'd go into a mushroom shape and refuse to do anything, um, which is, is very difficult. Obviously, when they're younger, actually, you can sometimes still pick them up and move them if you need to, but you can't make them walk and yeah. things like that. So that was the struggles we would have. Um, it was very definite. I used to say if Sasha didn't want to do something, you really couldn't make her do it. You know? And that was very different for us where, where we saw with our elders, you know, you could persuade, you could reward, you could, you know, do lots of things and use a lot of communication to try and make her do something she didn't want to do. But with Sasha, it never worked. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that that people sometimes don't understand is because they think oh you know you can punish reward praise yeah. and mm-hmm. and you'll get what you want them to do but that's yeah. not always the case is it no it doesn't and and some of that comes from lack of understanding from yeah. their part as well you know i'd say sasha's understanding was always um a bit behind her peers and she'd have good catch-up in things but you know she'd do things maybe six months after her peers so you know, i remember the whole role, role play mm-hmm. thing you know and playing with dolls houses and all of that it all came later for Sasha than it did for the other children. So. And it sounds like a, a lot of her challenges are, are anxiety-based. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think it you know, it takes a while to kind of see that. I think for people on the outside, again, looking in, you don't really understand that until you, you spend a lot of time with Sasha. But we so what happened for us after the initial diagnosis, which was um, of autism spectrum disorder, a very general diagnosis, but we kind of felt, well, what actually happened is I went away to a parent support group who all had girls with autism. So again, it's very common, I think, you know, for people to think that autism is a thing which affects boys only. So locally, there was a group who had girls who all met up. And I think they felt that, you know, the way girls present is quite different often to the way boys present, which again, is probably a bit of a myth. I think, you know, they're they're all different. there's, There's certain groups or pockets of groups who might be similar. And what happened was I went along to this group coffee mornings with these parents and they would all describe their daughters. And I would think, mm, that's not really quite what Sasha's like. And, you know, they were, as I began to realize, describing more of a typical Asperger's presentation, you know, where the girls were quite articulate and, you know, would talk to them about a lot of things. And Sasha wasn't doing any of that. So I kind of began to think, well, she doesn't quite fit in there. You know, mm-hmm. what is it then? And again, that takes you back in the whole, is it autism? But so I kind of led to me going away and Googling a bit, uh, as you do, <laughs> and using the internet. <laughs> and it was one of those, I uh, know, I don't know, but it was one of those times, you know, where I kind of stumbled across at first. It was the, um, what's quite common in America, which is called PDDNOS, which is um, Pervasive Development Disorder Not Otherwise Specified, which is obviously okay. a bit of a mouthful and not very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but PDD, Pervasive Development Disorder, is actually the overriding term um, which was used for autism spectrum disorder. 
before ASD became mm-hmm. more common. Yes, so ASD is now changing more to ASC as well, autism spectrum condition. Um, so it's all in the language and the words used. So this PDD-NOS sounded like it was also known as atypical autism. So for you know children who didn't fit necessarily all of the autistic ideas at that time. Um, and because of that, then a bit more research then led me on to finding out about pathological demand avoidance or PDA. And as soon as I read that, you know, the first website about that, it was, as other parents say, it's like a light bulb moment when you just, you can tick everything and say, yes, that is what my child is like. And, you know, I ran, ran through all the characteristics and, you know, it was Sasha Twitty. So, yeah, should I run through them with you now? Yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's one of the reasons I was, I was really keen to speak to you because I think actually the first I ever heard of PDA was reading your blog a couple of years yeah. ago. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I had no idea that it was a sort of subset of autism or my store. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think it'd be really great if you could explain to everyone a little bit about PDA. Yeah, so the characteristics of someone with PDA are um, resisting and avoiding ordinary everyday demands. So, for example, something as simple as putting your socks on. You know, Sasha would not wear socks for a good couple of years and I mean through winter and everything (laughs) so um yeah but you know it's kind of it's almost over um saying no to things that would be quite simple or you know that you can't then also um persuade them to do with rewards as we've said and so that's one the first thing the main thing really but then there, there were other characteristics so appearing sociable on the surface but lacking depth in their understanding so again, that was definitely relevant for Sasha. Um, excessive mood swings, often switching suddenly. And as I said, Sasha was a very happy baby until she really didn't want to do something and then you knew about it. So yeah. we had that. <laughs> Comfortable in role play and pretending uh, and sometimes to an extreme extent. So that's, you know, something that isn't um, identified with other autistic children very much at all. But Sasha has, a, you know, very vivid imagination and yeah, can take that to extremes and become the parts that she's playing very well. Um, and then language delay was originally thought to be one of the the main characteristics. So for us, obviously, that was a, a big box ticked. Yeah. Um, and this uh, it was often said that there was a good degree of catch up. So it was an early language delay. And for us, that seems Sasha did catch up with her speech. It's always been ever so slightly noticeable and unusual phrases little bits but you know as a whole most people on first speaking to her wouldn't recognize that Um, and then the last thing is obsessive behavior which again is quite an autistic trait but with pda it tends to be more focused on people rather than objects so you know again the stereotypical autistic idea is wheels that spin or transport or something or pylons or something unusual as an obsession but for, for those with PJ, it seems to be more about needing a person. And it is, you know, I find certainly for most parents, you know, that would be the one who spends the most time with the child. And I'm talking about most parents, even without um, the autism involved there. But it's it's to an extreme. And I think for, for me, I see that as because there's the need for the relationship and the trust to be built up and the understanding of them. So, yeah, you know, Sasha does always want me and, you know, rather than her father or grandparents or anybody else because I am with her most of the time and understand how she's feeling and which things she will be anxious about and I use all the strategies so I can't you know it's a a two-way thing but 
but yes, the obsessive behaviour is, is one of the characteristics. So that's the main characteristics of PDA. So you, you've discovered PDA and have found all these, these points that sort of, as you said, sort of ticked all the boxes for you. So what, mm-hmm. what happened next? How did you go about, I don't know, finding out more or getting the diagnosis of PDA? Yeah, so finding out more online, there, there is a lot of information out there. And there was something at the time called the PDA Contact Forum, which has since become the PDA Society. And it's a group of parents who volunteer, do a lot of work, um, who all have children with PDA identified with this. Um, we personally, for us, we went back to the pediatrician with this idea, you know, saying, oh, this really is what it seems like Sasha had. She didn't disagree with us, but as I well, we kind of have understood more in later years. I think, you know, her view was that it wasn't going to help really to have that as a diagnosis. Oh, really? Um, yes. <laughs> and we can kind of, you can talk around that. It's a big issue about the, you know, the understanding of PDA in the first mm. place. But and because of the way the diagnostic medical manuals go, you know, there's obviously a lot more highly intelligent people than me who get involved with the, the idea of what you should diagnose people with. So, you know, I kind of, we took that to an extent, but I did at one point, I just felt so strongly that Sasha really, you know, I could identify with all of these points rather than all the other, you know, mums I was speaking to seemed to have children were very different. And I did go back and ask for, um, not so much a second opinion, but a referral on to the specialist centre for PDA. Right. So there's, there is a specialist place in Nottingham where Elizabeth Newson, who is a very prominent expert in autism, first identified PDA. And there's actually a big centre up there called Norsaka, or the Elizabeth Newson Centre, where they did a lot of work, um, you know, and, and researched a lot. Um, and they would, at that point, take people for referrals. And I would have loved to go up there, but Nottingham's out of area for us. So what happened was we were um, offered the chance to go into London to Great Ormond Street, where they have a specialist department for high-functioning autism. Um, so we were sent there to see you know, what they would make of the idea of what we were talking about. And I've documented all of that in my blog. It's a, a long story. So, yeah, at, at the end of it, they were, you know, they were having done a lot more tests. They saw a lot of the avoidance from Sasha because she wouldn't complete <laughs> many of the tests. Um, but we did get some interesting results out of it. And, yeah, yeah that's that's helped us along the way. So I am glad we went and did that. So how old was Sasha when, when you was going through all of that? Those tests, she was probably about seven, six or seven. Okay. So, yeah, around year two of her infant school. What would you say PDA means for her like now? How is it showing her sort of everyday life? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's difficult um, because the anxiety leads to avoidance of a lot of things. So mm. Sasha refuses to leave the house for most things. Luckily, at the moment, she will go to school. Um, but you know, at the weekend or in holidays, unless it's something she's very comfortable with, you know, there's certain activities she does enjoy, which swimming. There've been other ones along the way, but then for whatever reason, you know, then they become too much for her, yeah. and that, you know, a lot of that is to do with mm-hmm. sensory issues. So, you know, along the way, we've had things like roller skating and trampolining and other things like that. But, um, but yeah, swimming is one that she will still always leave the house for. But she would not, for example, very rarely go out just for a walk. We'd have to have an end place somewhere that she knows she's going to and is comfortable with. So a playground still, you know, she would still go and spend time in a playground, which a lot of, you know, children this age, 11, wouldn't. I mean, they, they might because it's a novelty for them now, but um, usually really playgrounds are for much younger children. Yeah. 
and she kind of she notices that really that she's older than other children there so she's a bit torn because she wants to be somewhere like that but equally that puts her off going so yeah there's, there's nothing really straightforward about going out you know I never go shopping with her she doesn't handle things like that very well crowds and so all the sensory issues come into play then but crowds particularly problem and noise um hot and cold sensitivities all of that plays a part she doesn't like the rain so she doesn't like being outside in the rain and she really struggles with and it's one of the things when she was younger that she always struggled with is waiting for anything so it's it's like she has extreme impatience but it's it can be sometimes it'll be linked to not understanding what's coming next or that fear of not knowing what's coming next and just the whole hanging around things that you know as adults even we don't particularly like but we just kind of learn to cope with but yeah she's never managed to learn to cope with those things so that can cause us big issues waiting for anything so yeah general life can be tough you know at home alone she likes to play on uh, her own games and you know youtube and that type of thing where she's in control of what she's doing we do we have her sibling of course and they will play together at times but a lot of the time they're apart because Sasha finds it very difficult to still to do that give and take and understand that somebody else might want to win a game for example (laughs) we all have to let Sasha win all the time and it's just you know obviously we don't have to nobody is forcing us to do that but in order to have a calm life one where Sasha is not uh, you know in a meltdown and becoming extremely you know frustrated and angry then we do you know, try new strategies to, to keep a calm life at home, which means we don't do very much. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned a few times since we've been talking that uh, sort of strategies you use. Are there any in particular that, that sort of really work well for her? Yeah, so there's there's a lot in um, the language you use. So using indirect language is really important. So um, offering choices, kind of um, suggesting things rather than demanding that things happen. So the whole issue is around demands and that buildup of demands. And as I've said, you know, something like a daily demand of getting dressed, putting your socks on, brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, all of those things for other people, they just happen and you get into a routine and you forget actually that they are demands. I mean, they don't seem like a a demand with a big D because we're just so used to doing them. But to someone with PJA, they are all um, demands that someone else is trying to make them do. And it's that whole build up because they're they're already anxious, you know, I think when they wake up in the morning, then, you know, just piling those demands on and not knowing what's coming next and what they're going to have to do to someone else's requirements can be, be really tricky. So kind of keeping demands low is one thing to do, yeah. um, you know, try to work out which of those demands are important. Like, is it important to get stressed today? Obviously, at different ages, that is and isn't important. So. For us, you know, she'd spend a, a lot of time not wearing clothes, and that comes back to sensory issues as well. But, you know, when she was younger, then, you know, where other people might insist on clothes all the time at home, we didn't. So, you know, we'd take one of those demands away from her. Yeah. You know, brushing teeth is something that a lot of parents really get stressed about. We probably had a, at least a two-year period where Sasha didn't brush her teeth at all, which I, you know, hesitate to admit to people, but but it kind of... it. <laughs> Luckily for us, it, it was fine because Sasha only drinks water and so there wasn't you know, a major issue with her teeth and her teeth are good. So we, we are lucky in that respect, but we were able to take away that tooth brushing demand. And now she does it once a day. And, you know, for us, that's good that she's doing it at all. But yeah, so for different children, those kind of demands and what you can and can't do 
will need to change clearly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, trying to manage that, the level of demands and, and what think, really thinking about what you have to do. I think there's a lot conditioned in us as a society and, you know, the way you were brought up and what society expects of us, such as, for example, sitting at a table to eat food. When you really think about it, you know, is it necessary? And it's, it's something we've had to change our viewpoint on to, you know, enable calm living with Sasha. It's not something we could force her to do, to sit at a table to eat food. We could, our eldest daughter, you know, that's been no problem at all. But yeah, for Sasha, it just wasn't possible. So, so we've kind of cut back on that demand. So all of these things, you kind of have a balance where, and you start, you know, eight years down the line, I know what works for us and what we will push for and what we won't. But there's very few things saying that, that I will push for because then, at the end of the day, because she trusts me, she knows that what I do say is necessary, yeah. really is, and then she will do it. So it's all about that, the balance for me. So, yeah, that's kind of one. That's, yeah, so reducing demands, um, building relationships, so that understanding them, you know, trying to not treat them as an adult, but, you know, treat them as if you understand what their needs are is really important because then if they're trusting you, that can help reduce the over, you know, the underlying anxiety level. Being phrased, so I said about the the um, the words, choosing words carefully as well. It's we've never said, well, not since the early days anyway. We never said no to Sasha. I used to joke because I'd say that was her favourite word, so she was quite happy to say no <laughs> and, to, and not do things. But yeah. if we said no to her, then it would cause the meltdown. So you know that's an extreme demand saying no. So we'd say so now we'd we'd say it in a different way. So we'd say if she wants to do something well. Maybe that's not such a good idea now, but we could think about doing it tomorrow or, you know, offer a different choice mm. so that something else becomes more acceptable. So, yeah, lang- language and the words you use um, are really important. So it's it's like, may may we do this or could we do this or would you like to do this rather than, you know, you have to, we need to do this and we must do this. So I wonder if we might be able to go for a walk now. <laughs> it doesn't always work, of course, but um, yeah, it's. And a lot of the time is how you phrase things. And we, when Sasha was younger, particularly, but things like getting her to brush her teeth, we wouldn't say, okay, you must brush your teeth now. We'd say, I bet you can't finish brushing your teeth before I've, you know, done, hung this towel up or whatever. So there was an element of fun to it. So, she, you know, she would latch onto that and sometimes not realize there was a demand involved in there. And then also another option is to use a third person for like health and safety rules. So, you know, I, I don't think that's possible. The law says you can't do that. And so it's putting someone else who's not actually visible okay. as the person in charge. And sometimes that will work too. So yeah. And then using humor, as I've said, a lot of, a lot of humor works in our house. So <laughs> yeah, so that's quite a few of the strategies. There. Yeah. Wow. There's no, it sounds like some, <laughs> some great ideas there. And it's, I think one of the things you said there was, was about, um, adjusting your own expectations yeah and I, I think that's really key with autism in general isn't it for any parent involved with an autistic child is yeah sure definitely is changing i think there's always yeah there's so, always a worry of what other people are thinking mm. of you and what you do with your family as well and you can't you do have to let go of that um yeah. because you know your own family your own children better than other people outside so um, but it, but that can cause more stress for parents who see, you know, who are being judged by other people out on the streets. Those parents who do choose or not even choose, but have to take their children shopping to the supermarket with them. Then, you know, for other people to be standing there watching, judging um, or making comments, you know, is, is just adding to those stress levels. and is not going to, to help calm any situation. So, yeah, it's very difficult. 
thinking of, of yours and, and other sort of family stories I've, I've read um, where their children have PDA, I can imagine that maybe not so much now that more people are aware, but, but in the past you've been told that, you know, oh, she's just a naughty child or you're spoiling yeah. her or, mm-hmm. you know, how, uh, yeah. how have you coped with that? Yeah, I I really don't like the word naughty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's I think there's very few children who are you know intentionally naughty. There obviously there probably are some. I you know I'm not an expert in all different children, but I think often it's the environment and and what is happening to them. You have to kind of look behind that behaviour or not behind in front of it before it happens to understand what is making that reaction happen. So you know I think there's a great phrase for children with PDA, which is they can't help won't. They can't help won't and it's it's they can't help the fact that they won't leave the house for example right, um, okay. and it's it's to do with that anxiety that's in them which is leading to fear um, and the result is the behavior so you know for some children that can be lashing out you know for Sasha it's turning into mushroom that freezing for some it's running off so there's a different then reaction to what is causing them the anxiety in the first place so I think yeah it's really important to fix the initial problem but but equally, I can see for people on the outside, it's again, it's an ingrained society thing that we just think children are being naughty because they're not doing what we want them to do. And when you think about that, it's like, why? Why is what we are saying we want them to do right? You know, what what is the reason for everybody sitting at the table eating a meal just because it's habit? And it's it's kind of it's really interesting, you know, thinking about the whole psychology of it and where we are. You know, absolutely. I was asked recently whether Sasha, we had whether we had boundaries for Sasha at home, and I'm like, well, of course we have boundaries, but they they are going to be different to someone who doesn't. Yeah. And you know, I can say that as having a child who doesn't, you know, isn't autistic, they she doesn't need the kind of you know boundaries that we have with Sasha. As in, the, you know, there's less boundaries. We would have had more boundaries for our eldest if it wasn't for Sasha. So, but yes, Sasha has boundaries, and she knows. She knows certain things, so it's all in the communication, really. So she knows what she should and shouldn't do. Sometimes that doesn't stop her, for example, putting a lot of toilet paper down the toilet or whatever it is, because it's, there's a lack of understanding. There's an impulsive, impulsivity, but it's not noticed. It's not a desire yeah. to, you know, cause trouble. So, you know, with her, it's it's other things. Um, and I've done a post on my blog about um, the difference between pathological demand avoidance and ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder, which is a diagnosis which is often given to, uh, well, to children who maybe otherwise could be diagnosed with PDA. And ODD is, uh, the, the point in that is that it's oppositional and it's defiant. So Sasha was often described as oppositional when she was younger and certainly by the pediatrician initially because she wouldn't do something that we wanted her to do. But it was never defiance. It was never wanting to be awkward. You know, there was another underlying reason. So obviously I can't go into that massively, but there is a good a good blog post about the difference there. But yeah, so the word naughty does rankle a bit with me. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's a, a good reason why I try and explain about it a lot on the blog. And part of the reason I started the blog was wasn't really intended to be such a, a big thing. It was more an online diary for me to remember what different things Sasha was doing, but also for our and um, for Sasha's grandparents who didn't live locally to try and, you know, help them understand which, you know, which bits were different from the toddler behavior and all that as well. And then it sort of progressed from there, you know, and it has become very important to me to try and explain to other people why, you know, Sasha is different, what she's doing, what the reasons for it are. So that's why I followed through on the blog. 
yeah I'm, i mean the reason we do things like this like the podcast and your blog and my mm-hmm. blog is is obviously to try and help people understand more yeah. um about our lives and, and what autism is so I can imagine it, it must be frustrating that, you know, even less people understand PDA than they do autism. So Yeah, and it's still, I, I put in one of the posts about the timeline. So Asperger's was kind of discovered around the 1940s and then became much more of a word and more understanding about it in about the 80s. And I think, you know, we're on a similar sort of trajectory with PGA mm. where it was, um, you know, discovered 40 years after that. So we're kind of coming up to the time where it is being talked about a lot more. And on that point, there there is discussion about whether it is an actual thing, you know, is PGA real? And there is a lot, you know, I see a, a lot of parents and I've done training for parents on PGA. Um, and there's parents who have autistic children who say, but, you know, all autistic children are demand avoidant. And, you know, that's all of us really have the potential to be demand avoidant, to not do things we don't want to do, clearly. Um, You know, but some of us have that ability to bend and just cope with doing it for whatever reason. We can understand the other reasons why we might need to do something. So it's the pathological bit is the extreme anxiety, I would say. Mm. So there is still discussion around, you know, the name. A lot of people don't like the name pathological because, you know, that means has other connotations as a word. Um, But it's, it's just, it's a way of identifying these children and kind of strategies that work well with them that one of the main points is that strategies that work well or have shown to work well for some children with autism um, don't necessarily work for those with PDA. So for autistic children, you know, it's often said that um, routine and structure and, you know, making them follow a plan is a good thing. Whereas often with children with PGA, novelty and trying to change things is better. Um, So, so it's, it's around those strategies for me. It's not really about what it's called. Um, and that understanding that, you know, you need to understand the child really to, to mm. know what works for them. Obviously, you mentioned that, that uh, Sasha's communication is, is pretty good now, like, like mm-hmm. verbally. Is she yeah. ever able to sort of explain how she feels when she's sort of um, avoiding any demands? Um, not really. And, and in the moment of anything, she wouldn't because she's right. too wound up in stress. But even yeah. if we go to it later, um, some things she can a little bit now. But for example, there's something she said the other day. And when I tried to question her about it at a later time, she just got very angry again and right. refused to talk. So she's not great at communicating, or, you know, even telling me what's going on during school. It's kind of I do get a little bit more now, but not an awful lot. When she comes in from school, for example, she wants to de-stress and she just goes into her own space and, and plays and does whatever herself. But she's not really a talk. You know, occasionally at bedtime, I'll get a few words about something. But there's, I, you know, I'm, it's clear to me there's a lot going on in her mind that yeah. I don't get to know about. And it's, yeah, it's one of the challenges is how we bring that out. And I think, not, not go off on a totally different subject, but mental health is, you know, really closely related to this mm. um you know and there's a worry for that in the future as she begins to have more thoughts if they're not coming out then you know they're going to get very jumbled and yes where does that lead us it's a difficult yeah, yeah. difficult place how school coped with um pda and you sort of introducing it to them and, and explaining the, the yeah so, Sasha? interesting when so when we first found out about it sasha was probably year one at school and one of the first things I did was read the book, which is Understanding Pathological Demand Avoidance. And it's what I call my Bible of PDA because um, I read it the first time. There's lots of 
um, strategies in there, but the whole explanation of what it is. It's a great book, recommend it to everyone. But I also took one into school and said, because I was just like, this is Sasha, reading this book is exactly like Sasha. And I took it into school and I had the comment that, you know, it was a bit 50-50 that, you know, half the staff really agreed and half them were very skeptical (laughs) and i think you know that yeah that that is going to be life in general i think unfortunately again that's why i keep trying to educate more to explain it but um yeah so so school but school were great at putting you know the support in place and understanding her worked really well um all the way through and she had a a brilliant um teaching assistant when she was in year three and four at the junior school um, but I think at that point when work, the academic work demands became, you know, harder, then everything became harder. And it also got to a point when she was about nine where she started to realise she was a bit different to the other children. So she wasn't finding it easy to join in conversations. You know, she was getting more frustrated with them. So she was probably spending more time alone in the playground. And she had, you know, great children at school with her. So we were really lucky. They were all lovely with her. But, you know, that couldn't make and help her understand how to interact with them in a way that they all do with each other. So I think she started to realize that. And that was kind of a start downhill that combined with the academic that, you know, trying to step up the academic demands on her. So it got to year five and she well, she managed through most of year five, but towards the end of her year five. And we got to a point where she just refused to go anymore. But most of that year she'd been saying that she wasn't happy with the you know, the level of demands on her. So it was never the people or, or what they were trying to do. They were very accommodating, you know, would let her have lots of breaks from the classroom. She clearly needed the sensory times out. So all of that was happening, but it still wasn't enough to be able to keep her at the mainstream school, unfortunately. So yes, that was um, last summer, last June, when she stopped going to that school. And then we had a period of time when she was at home um, while we were trying to find her a new school place. And that, how was that time at home? Yeah, so that, that was quite challenging. It was when, So when she stopped was June, so there was only a few weeks of term left. And then, yeah. of course, we had the summer holidays. So at that point, I wasn't sure. I was I was fairly sure of myself, but, you know, I, we still needed to explore whether she would go back and start the next school year. But clearly I knew it would be difficult because of where she was at, but the whole transition then, the whole new going into a new class and all of that. So yeah, I kind of knew. And what we then did was had an emergency review of her EHCP in the September um, where everybody, you know, that's one thing I've been very lucky with that everybody has been on board with me and what we've said about PDA. And they've seen it. You know, Sasha doesn't hide. She doesn't mask it anyway. So I always said it was, you know, really lucky for us. She was the same at school as she was at home. So mm you know, people could then see and understand what was going on. So, yeah, we had an emergency review and then it went to what's called a provision panel to discuss about what school type of school would be best for her and what school availability there is. And so this was all kind of going on a lot of meetings, of course, with Sasha at home at the same time and us not really knowing what would happen next or when. But obviously I was hoping she would get a place in a a school that was more suitable for her. So at home she wasn't doing any learning with me she kind of has always refused to do learning at home she's not you know been great at doing it at school because it's a demand so yeah. uh, you know she's fact she learns a lot from you know the youtube she watches or whatever or from being out but she's yeah to sit down and do school work has not ever really been on the cards so so yeah there 
there wasn't a lot going on at home other than you know obviously a lot behind the scenes of us trying to find a good place for her and so we had a second meeting where it went back to the panel again and it was agreed that the type of school that Sasha needs was a special school or specialist school I like to call them Um, but yeah an LA run school and in our county there's only um, mainstream schools or learning disability schools yeah. And Sasha doesn't really fit into one of those categories or the other. Um, but there's there's no other option at the moment. I won't go into that. She did then get a place at the special school, but it took then until just before Easter because of some toing and froing um about the place at that school. Um so she's only been there now a few weeks, but she is in a, a local special school. Wow, so she was at home for a long time then, wasn't she? Yeah, it was about eight, nine months in the end. And so, you know, I think the not knowing it would be that long also led to not really being able to make any plans for it. Yeah. So towards the end, so in January, although we knew we were getting a school place, we didn't know when she would be able to start. And I did start joining in with some or trying some home educating activities out of the house. We went to a great trampolining session. But, you know, as I said, joining in with sessions like that is quite difficult for Sasha if Mm. there's a need to interact or to follow instructions. Um, so it has to be quite basic, quite small group. And that worked well for us for a little bit. I know you, you spoke a little bit earlier about the relationship between Sasha and her sister. Uh, and I know from reading your blog that you, you're very keen to to make sure that you spend time with, with her sister and that she doesn't miss out on certain things. And, and you, yeah. you know, you try and make sure that doesn't happen. How mm-hmm. how do they get on that? How do you manage that? Yeah, it's really, it's one thing I say about the blog, although the name is probably not so great. <laughs> At the time, it was the only website name I could find that wasn't taken. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was it was always for me, right from the start, from the diagnosis, about the fact that uh, it, we were a whole family and that diagnosis wasn't just going to affect Sasha, it was going to affect us all. Um, and that everybody should be aware of, you know, particularly, uh, yeah, our, our older sibling. So that's kind of where the blog was named and why I am really keen to talk about the siblings because they do often get left behind because it's it's not their thing they're not autistic but mm. it does have such an impact on them and our girl our older sibling has been brilliant she obviously was two was four when Sasha was diagnosed and we've been able to talk to her about it obviously in very basic terms to start with but all the way through yeah um, you know we've just explained to her and talked about what Sasha does and why that's different and why you know she didn't understand certain things and it is really difficult for obviously a young child the sibling to understand why their younger sibling would uh, in in those brackets get away with doing something that they wouldn't be allowed to do but it's it's kind of keeping that communication open and I always used to say when Sasha was younger that I would have allowed Sasha to have chocolate for breakfast if she'd wanted um which it's not about wanting it's kind of about a need but if yeah. she'd come down and said she wanted chocolate for breakfast I would have said yes to Sasha but there's no way I would have let our older mm. daughter have chocolate for breakfast and it's it's that which seems and to her would seem completely unfair and you know obviously I never explained that particular scenario to her but it was just a way of me explaining to people that the need for Sasha to do that on that day you know, would be the difference between a good day and a bad day. Mm. And obviously you think, you know, any child would want chocolate for breakfast or most of them anyway, but, you know, and why should you let them have it? But it was just, you know, with Sasha, it's the difference. Something like that wouldn't be a need every day to do that. So the the understanding of, of what worked um, for one, uh, you know, one sibling and not the other was something we had to keep talking about with our eldest. And, 
you know, as she's grown up, she does really understand there's times where she doesn't like the fact that her younger sister gets to do something she doesn't, for example. But, it, you know, if we can demonstrate there's a good reason for that and it's to do mm. with Sasha's anxiety and well-being, then she does, you know, go along with it. A good example is in the car, Sasha always sits in the front seat. And normally you'd expect an older sibling to kind yeah. of have that right. <laughs> but for Sasha, it's partly to do with the fact that she gets travel sick, but gets very anxious about travel. But also she wants to control the music we have in the car. And so it is that her being in control. But it's one way we can get her to go out in the car is if she's in the front seat. Whereas right. if we started telling her she had to sit in the back seat she would just refuse to go. So it, it's been a, you know, that's a, it is an unfair thing for our older girl, but we have to make it up to her in other ways, you know, and that's what we do to work around it. So, yeah, it, it doesn't feel fair a lot of the time. But I, the one thing that keeps me going is I think, you know, it's turning our older girl into a very caring, you know, an understanding mm. young lady she'll hopefully grow up to be. So, yeah, we'll see. Obviously, as you said, you've been telling your story for for quite a few years now on on your yeah. blog. Um, mm-hmm. How did so? You said you started it really as a diary to yeah. to talk about it Sasha. was the family. Yeah. yeah, it was to sort of explain what she was doing and and when and how those behaviours were different to to our oldest girls and yeah, just uh, trying to get the understanding across to people. And how did it sort of progress into a bigger thing like it is now? Do you know what, I. I really couldn't tell you, but it was probably a couple of years before I actually realised that there was a whole blogging world out there and mm. communities and events to go to. So yeah, I'm not quite sure how I first kind of stumbled across that as well. It was very much more of a you know get my source out. I mean, when I go back and read some of my early posts now, it does sometimes make you cringe a bit, but it's just <laughs> it's a good reflection of all the thoughts that were going around my yeah. head at the time. So. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I'd never go and delete all of that. It's quite useful referencing to look back on. Um, but, yeah, so at some point when I realized blogging was more of a thing than I, I did end up um, doing a lot more toy reviews in my blog because I used to be a toy buyer. That's oh, really? my life, my life before children. Yeah. So I, I always had an interest in toys and products. I bought stationery as well. So just general product development yeah. was an area that I loved. So, um, but when I found out we could do reviews and obviously, the toys coming in for the children was nice, but I could actually really, you know, think about something else other yeah. than the autism. So that gave me a focus for a little while. And I still do the odd review or not so much toys, but odd, um, you know, housewares or whatever now. But it's not really about that for me. That's you know, one area of blogging that a lot of other people go into. But for me, it's still, you know, the, the prime aim of it is to educate people about PDA and autism mm. in general. And obviously, one of the ways I've I've sort of got to know you is because you you started a, a group for for special needs bloggers as such, yeah, um, which has been great. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's really been a good sort of support network. Yeah, I think that feeds back into what I said about when you know parents are sent away with a diagnosis that other parents are the people to find and who I always recommend that mm. you know are the first step. Um, I just think that there is some understanding with, even though, you know, clearly our children, you know, my children are very different to, to your children. Yeah. Um, but there's just an understanding of the system and of the kind of questions you're going to be asked and the, the kind of attitudes you'll face and all of those kind of things and the knowledge of where to go to look for support. So just, you know, on, on a bad day to share with someone is so important, you know, in life generally. But it's when other people understand that something that seems so minor to another family is actually really huge to you. Then that's, yeah, been really helpful to have other people around. 
and I saw that uh, you was involved with uh, an event for the PDA Society. How, yeah. how sort of involved are you with them? Okay, so the, the PDA Society was, as I said, used to be called the PDA Contact Forum, and then it just changed name. But it was the very first thing or the first way I found out about PDA. Um, and it's all parents who have children um, with PDA. And yeah, so so they went, I obviously got a lot of support information from them in the early days. And then fairly quickly, I, you know, I think because of doing the blog and I wanted to share this with other people and I um, signed up to run training courses on behalf of the PDA Society. So they've developed courses for parents um, and now more than that. So it's been developing over the past few years. There's there's workshops for professionals as well, all sorts of ways to get the message across, because I just think telling people about it. Um, but for parents, particularly offering them support, you know, mm. and that that knowledge that they're not doing things the wrong way, you know, that they will get challenged and judged by other people. But as long as you're stronger in your own beliefs of what your child needs, and um, that can really help. So, so yeah, I've really enjoyed running parent courses, which are sort of six weeks long. And you know, parents come and we just explain the strategies to them and help them understand a bit more. Um, so I do that. In fact, I'm going on a, a training day again tomorrow for that. But um, yeah, there's and then locally, I'm I'm doing a, a workshop, a whole day event where I'm I'm telling you know, explaining again about PDA to a lot of people. So that's, you know, given me a purpose or a way of yeah, spreading great. that message wider. So that's, yeah, kind of how involved I am with them. And the conference that they held recently was, I think it was over 250, no, fine, I can't remember. Numbers, there was a lot, again, I put it in my blog post. A lot of parents and professionals came along to hear lots of different aspects of PDA, you know, from experts, from parents, from children and young adults themselves who have PDA right. and it was yeah a great day out really good really informative hmm. so it sounds like uh, anyone who wants to know more about PDA should definitely check out the PDA, the PDA society, society yes, yeah definitely again links in the blogs but... perfect um just before we we sort of wrap up um mm-hmm. just want to make sure everyone knows how to find your blog and find you on mm-hmm. social mm-hmm what's the okay. what's the best way fairly to find straightforward you? so the blog is www.steps to girls that's f-t-e-p-h-s-t-w-o and then girls.co.uk um so that's the main blog site but then across um all of the media so on facebook i'm steps to girls so you type in steps to girls in the search it should come up uh likewise twitter i'm at steps to girls on instagram at steps to girls so no apostrophe in it, just Steph's two girls and should find me most places. Perfect. And I'll make sure that's all linked up in the, the show notes as well for anyone to find. Okay. Um, and yeah, just before I ask the final question, just want to say thank you for, for obviously okay. joining me today. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, you were the first sort of I found out. That's how I found out about PDA. I didn't really know anything. Mm-hmm. about it at all before reading your blog so yeah it's a, it's an amazing job that you're doing sort of spreading the awareness and, and helping other families not feel so alone and, and not feel that their children are naughty and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so I think it is really important what you're doing so yeah thank you mm-hmm. yeah thank you <laughs> um so yeah so final question what's just something that you'd like the world to know about autism Okay, well, there's probably, there's probably two main things, but I've, yeah, I've probably gone over them in it, but I'll, I'll go over them again. So the first thing is that every autistic person is different. So forget all the stereotypes and the myths and mm. get to know the individual. That's so important because, you know, even though I am all for talking about this one type, you know, PDA, I, there's lots of children either side of that who can, you know, show some of these traits. So it's just understanding what works for that child and 
you know, trying to, to speak to the parents as well, get a bit more knowledge. So that's what, you know, I'd love people to do that. And then specifically more about PDA, it's that I would love people to not say that, you know, these are naughty children. Really think about yeah. when you call someone naughty about what has caused that behavior. Yeah, this whole they can't help won't and the anxiety. Think about, you know, the, the action, the behavior as the result of whatever is causing them the anxiety in the first place um, and try and yeah, work backwards and piece the puzzle together. Perfect. Well, thank you, Steph. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, nice speaking to you. Thanks, James. So there you have it. That was episode number six and my chat with Steph Curtis. Thanks, Steph, for taking the time to join us. I'm sure that you opened a lot of eyes for people today and explained really well what PDA is and sort of the impact it has on on people's lives and some of the strategies that you have to put in place to, to help people cope with it. So I think it's fantastic. If you want to find out more about PDA, please do check out Steph's blog and the PDA Society. Uh, they're the best places to look. And if you enjoyed the episode, please could you leave me a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen and I'll have another special guest next week. <laughs>